You are now listening to the Whipped Cream Podcast with Bianca Harris and Chantelle Chapman. Hey guys, welcome back to part two of our podcast with Joseph Lee. You might want to listen to a few minutes of the last podcast, uh, part one, just to kind of refresh your memory because we jump right in. This episode, Chantal and I share some of our experiences and really get to unpack and discover a lot. This episode is pretty intense. And closer to the end, we also analyze a listener dream. Let's do it. I'm so glad we're talking about this. Chantal and I went to, I don't remember what the name of the meeting was, um, sex and relationships meeting of some kind. And it was so interesting. We didn't really talk about it that much after, but four men in the room all had the same thing to say. Uh, they were maybe in their 40s or 50s and their their addictions had basically been spawned from the fact that they were never allowed to express their emotions. They were never allowed to let anything out. They weren't, they didn't even, they didn't even understand their emotions. Just, it was like a total gray area. Um, and I found it so fascinating because we're so in touch with it. And we talked to every, I have my girlfriends that I can talk to about anything, anytime. And I, I guess I was even blind to the fact of that. I'm like, wow, they don't even, that's, that's like foreign over there. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you begin to unpack why things are affecting you if you can't even be in touch with the emotion that made it affect you? Right. Wow. Right. So the clinical term for that is alexithymia, <clears throat> which is when somebody comes in and they cannot identify or even name their feelings. I'll tell you a heartbreaking story. I was working with a man many years ago, and he had had a very long history of addiction, very tragic um, costs for the addictions, but he was you know, starting to get himself together. Um, so we're, we're talking and we're having you know, some soulful things are emerging. And then I noticed that he begins to weep, but he doesn't pause, he just keeps talking as if he's not weeping. And so then I said, you know, let's pause for a minute. I feel like you know, something's happening. You know, what, what's kind of happening in your face? And he, and he reaches up and he touches his cheeks and he goes, oh, my eyes are producing water. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. I mean, it's funny because it seems inconceivable, but also I was like, wow, okay, okay, this is where we're working. So that's called crying. And it was a revelation. He was like, what? So yeah, that not only the eyes producing water, but do you notice that your face feels a little bit hot? Yeah. But we also have to then go back and imagine what happened in this poor guy's life that he was so alienated from from acknowledging feelings. So one of the things that happens is children are not born knowing that they have feelings. Somebody has to tell them. And if you look at um, good relationships between children and their caregivers, You'll see this where mom goes, you're so sad. You're so sad. Come on over here. Look how happy you are. You're so happy. That just instinctively, moms and caregivers 
verbalize and name for children and categorize for them what's happening to them. And this is where we, this is the basis of active listening techniques, which are used all over corporate America now. And many of us don't get that, and this fellow didn't. People who are raised without enough parental support, they're having all kinds of experiences. And if there's not an adult to name it, it's just not named. It's just marauding around. So it's not just that people, fellows, don't know that they're having emotions, that they actually may not even know how to differentiate them. And that's more sad than anything else. Mm -hmm. Now, if a woman is dating a fellow and she really likes him, like there's a, there's a big basket of good stuff there, but she notices that he's not emotionally literate, instead of feeling upset about it or maybe even scornful, to decide that she can be helpful. You know, this is something I can contribute. So all of a sudden your fellow looks angry and for her to just be able to say, oh, you look so angry. And he might look surprised. Like, what? It's like, yeah, you look angry. And that may sound infantilizing, but actually it can be a goddamn revelation. You look really sad, honey. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Your forehead's really, you know, is all tight and your shoulders are up and you're looking at the ground. And I feel for you. You look really sad. Mm. Now, parents do that for kids. Some women may think, oh, God, I'm not going to do that. That's okay. You don't have to. But if you're in a relationship with somebody where the other 80% of it's pretty good stuff, might be able to help out and, and get the other 10% up and running just by really understanding that it's not purposive. It's just that something's missing. There's a wonderful old term that we use in uh, psychoanalytic analytic work called a lacuna. Lacuna. And it's a great word. I wish it would come back into fashion. And it means it's an area of absence. Mm. And a lot of times I think men and women think that something's being withheld from them or someone's being mean to me or, you know, they, they get all frustrated and maybe angry. And sometimes that's warranted. But sometimes if we just really look in, it's just an empty space. Wow. And that's interesting because that's easier to fix, by the way. Because it's not like anything's fighting against you. Yeah. It's just that nothing was ever put in there. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I was, I was kind of fig trying to figure out what you meant by that, but that makes sense. So for instance, this fellow who water, his eyes were producing water, he wasn't resistant when I said, oh, you're crying. He was fascinated. He was just a lacuna. He wasn't defended against knowing he was crying. It's just that no one ever mentioned it. I know that sounds incredible, um, but it's really, it happens. So these guys that don't talk about feelings, it'd be interesting to know whether they are, anyone's ever helped them identify them. The word lacuna, is that what it was? Mm -hmm. 
There's something yes. about that that feels very neutral. Exactly. There's no blame. There's, yeah, there's no blame. There's no narratives. It's just neutral. It's just not there. Yeah. It, it's like you can't blame a blind person because they don't know what a color is. Yeah. Because the, the brain's never been introduced to it. So it's just some kind of a metaphor if they've been blind from birth. So not everything is a lacuna, but it's interesting to think about it. And we have lacuna. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, when women have their first babies, there are often experiences that the babies induce in them that are astounding. I remember my little sister having her first baby and she, she called me up and she goes, I didn't even know I was capable of feeling that kind of love. Like, like I didn't even know it was on the human dimension. Wow. To feel the kind of love that I have for this baby. So in a way, there was a lacuna around that dimension of love. And then the experience filled it. And then she knew. She's like, oh my gosh. And then every other experience of love was then quantified against what the maximum amount of love suddenly became. I mean, it was kind of this inner revolution. It was a beautiful experience, but it was, she was shocked. There's no moral issue around that. There's no judgment around it. It's just, I just never experienced something like that. Right. That's so, I think, I think exactly what you said, Chantel, is so, it, it is so much more neutral. Because sometimes when you're in a relationship with someone like that as, as the woman and you're like, well, why aren't you sharing your feelings with me? Like, why, why are you trying to hide this from me? Like, da -da, and, and, so, and I've, had, I've had men be like, I don't know what you want me to say. There you go. But my reaction is to be like, they're serious, just hiding something. There's got to be something in there. I have all these emotions. You should have them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. That's such a great way to look at it. And in, in terms of like how, how we um, uh, interact with that lack of, I guess you would say, or just lacuna, right? Yeah, that, um, at least to be open to it. Now, the, of course people hide things, you know, just as we were talking about needs, you know, it's not uncommon for, you know, a little boys to be very emotional. And, you know, at, at a certain point, I remember this moment, you know, I was, I must have been five, and I was walking towards the house. We were living in Queens at the time, and I fell onto the cement, and I started to cry. And I remember my own voice in my mind thinking, I will never cry again, because I had been, you know, my parents had scolded me for crying prior to that. You know, so I, I really identify with this message from the culture, at least of my generation, that, you know, it, big expressions of feeling are really not okay. Not okay for guys. And then, of course, that message gets internalized, and then you're meeting these fellows that are 40, and they don't even remember that moment where feelings were not going to be talked about or were going to be invalidated. So it is possible that there is a hiding phenomenon going on, and I'd be open to it. But lacuna is also sometimes really true. So it's using your intuition and also getting to know them a little more deeply to figure out, is it, is it fear? Is it hiding? Will they socialize to hide it? 
Is it just a true empty space, an unfilled space in them? And, and to notice whether you're interested in discovering that, because that's how you decide whether there's actually the possibility of relationship. If you're not interested in going in and sorting that out, figuring that out for him, there probably isn't enough attraction there. But if you're across from a guy and you're thinking, I really want to know about this, this guy, there's something going on with that. That's the beginning of perhaps a relationship that could sustain. Because you're interested in how his psyche works. point how do you support someone in knowing that maybe they were um again scolded as you were um from crying or showing emotion how do you be the supportive person instead of being the person that just wants to make fix them like i struggle in that too because you kind of want to overcompensate for their lack of emotion or be like the person who's like i can change him yes Yes. So I understand that. So um, people who are uh, have a strongly developed intuition are at risk for falling in love with somebody's potential because you sense what's possible and you sense what might be fighting to emerge. And that's so real for people that are intuitive that that's as real as the person in front of them. But it's still only real in that intuitive realm. And in the day-to-day relationship of dating the person, you'll still have to deal with all the problems that they've got as they're trying to actualize. So I think we do need to understand what's in the reality principle. Because reality is medicinal. And I know, Chantal, that's true for you. I mean, with your work with finances, I mean... What's the reality and how do we adapt to reality? Yeah. And that's true in all the realms. Mm-hmm. So we do have to discern, you know, who is really in front of us as well as we can. I think the modern myth that we should date people or we should not have to help people that we are dating, I really question that. I'm not going to date a guy who needs me to help him bring his emotions out. I agree with you. I feel like it's a I don't mod- know about that. Yeah. It's a mod- yeah, it is. Because yeah. even if you're dating somebody and, and in the first two years, you think you're dating somebody that, you know, I didn't need to take care of him at all. You know, sooner or later, that myth is going to get punctured. Yeah. And they're going to need you to take care of them in some fashion. Yeah. Now, I-, I can... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I I love the idea, like, when I think of how I want to be present in a relationship, I often think about, like, elevating my partner, right? Mm-hmm. And, but there, then there's this side of me is like, oh, am I trying to, like, change someone? But I don't feel that. I feel like I want to, like, elevate what's in there in you and I want to show up and be of service to you in a way that like allows you to step into your fullest greatest potential 
Well, yes, I think, I think the that person has to be willing to want to do that as well. Mm -hmm. like, right, that we can't, we can't inflict actualization on people. Right. Because then I think that's, of course. I think that's when it comes into the realm of like, you're trying to fix them. But if they're willing to be coachable or willing to want to evolve or whatever that is, then you can get somewhere. But I, I, I just know from experience when you try to do it from the side of like, I want, I want to help you bring this forward and they don't, then you can forget it. Yeah. 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 No, I feel like that. I feel like it's not like, it's uh, not like I want to do this and you're not even open up to it. It's just like, it's something that is part of the way that I want to be present in any of my relationships, yeah, like friendships and everything. Right. Like, how can I like, um, how can I elevate you and your potential? Right. But mm -hmm. I don't look at it as like, I'm trying to fix you and you're not open to this. Mm -hmm. So let's do that exercise again that we did with the other word. Because again, elevate is a oh, very really? interesting. Yes, because <laughs> elevate's a really interesting word. Like when you say the word elevate, I'm thinking the word actualize. Mm, okay. But I don't know that they're synonymous. You know, so in order for us to comment on that particularly, I'm going to invite you again. And I'm. it's lovely that you're willing to do this, you know, on the air. Because what you're yeah. doing, you're modeling what I hope people will who are listening yeah yeah so in that way it. it's highly instructive yeah let's do it so just going in and relaxing and you're thinking about the word elevating relative to elevating people and you're going to open that daydreamy imaginal world and just report what's in there when you think of the word elevating What's the inner life of that idea? <laughs> Busted! <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! You know what I just thought of? I just thought of it feels like a piece of my shadow. It feels like being a helper because I'm needed. Say more about that. Yeah. Like, if I can, if I can elevate and I can be of service and I can be help, that means I'm needed yeah. and I'm worthy. Yeah. That it's something, it's actually a talent that you have and that you trust in that's yeah. well developed. Yeah. And if you lead with this talent, then you feel more confident that you would be welcomed in as a valuable partner, that you would yeah. be loved for that, because you can trust in that ability. Yeah. Okay. As far as it goes, that sounds very reasonable. <clears throat> that might be an opening salvo into a, into a relationship. It's just that if it were the primary or the dominant note in the relationship, then it would probably be more of a mentor-mentee relationship. Mm. And your needs might not be as visible. And over time, that might be really difficult for you. Yeah, and you know what? I've actually been in situations where I show up in that way because you're right, it is a talent. It's like even in, in the work that I do, I'm like, I, I want to be of service. I want to elevate people. Um, so in relationship, when I've shown up like that, 
I feel like there's a part of me that's expecting that. And when I don't get it, I'm disappointed. Yeah. So there's an outcome to it. When you don't get what? When I don't get that same, like, that same cheerleading back. Right. That same support back. There's a, maybe, maybe am I behaving like a martyr? I don't know, but there's, there is a level of disappointment. There's a level of attachment to the outcome of that, that service. Well, what you're saying there reminds me of that great book, The Five Love Languages. Yeah. You guys read that? Yeah. Love, love, love. So the way you were framing it right there, um, Chantel, is that in the five love languages, there's an idea that people seem to need certain experiences in order to feel loved. Now, this, before the guy wrote the Love Languages book, this was something that was talked about um, very directly in neuro-linguistic programming Mm -hmm. uh, many years before. But he brought it forward in a way that made it much more accessible with the five love languages. So what he was seeing in his couple's work is that one person in the couple tended to want to do certain things in the relationship, like acts of service. You know, I'll fix the car, I'll mow the lawn, I'll paint the house, I'll, you know, acts of service. And then the other person may actually want to give or notice that they're giving physical affection, mm-hmm. lots of physical affection, and back rubs and kisses and arm rubs. And trouble happens when the thing that's given doesn't match what you actually need to feel loved. Mm-hmm. The other thing this fellow noticed is people tend to give the behaviors that they require in order to feel loved. So the spouse that only feels loved or primarily feels loved through physical affection wants to speak that language to the other person in the relationship. Now, when those two things line up, when where both partners speak the language of affection in order to stimulate feelings of being loved, that can feel great. Wow, like we're you know, really meeting each other's needs. But you're talking about these situations where you really want your romantic partner to, to support you in actualizing, to move up in the way that you think of it, and you know, to really help you and be invested in that mm-hmm. and that that would be a wonderful experience for you mm-hmm. yeah the difficulty is that most people who are skilled in actualization and are skilled in stimulating that in other people don't require that in great doses from the outside environment Mm. because you're so conscious of pursuing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious if we don't mind being personal. No, let's do it. Given what you know about actualization and about consciousness and about spirituality, because I mean, you're well along on the path. What is, what is the area of elevation that you wish a man 
could meet you in and support you that would really, really make you feel loved? What do you think that would be? An area of elevation. That you wish your romantic partner would really support you and help you in. I think um, what comes to mind is like discerning between the narratives of my trauma and my the voice of my soul, my intuition. Okay. So this is a powerful archetype of rescuing the feminine has fallen. Yeah. Yeah. It's a powerful archetype because it exists because mm -hmm. people are in this place. Yeah. So there are many myths and fairy tales of the feminine falling into matter, falling into various kinds of entrapments and crying out, you know, to be to be recognized and lifted out of and redeemed. You know, in one sense, it's the Cinderella story. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this valuable, lovely feminine figure is kind of trapped in these painful circumstances. And if this redeeming masculine can find her, sort through everyone else and see her, he would lift her, elevate her. Mm. She'd become, in that fairy tale, a princess, become a queen because she was found, you know, found in the coal bin, in the dustbin. So it's a powerful archetype and people want to be found mm -hmm. who feel that, that we're lost. And I think owning that, holding it in your heart as a desire to be healed, as a desire to be supported is wholesome and reasonable. Mm -hmm. And to hold it consciously. Now, it may be that a romantic partner will love you well enough to do that. And it may be that there are other resources that can be accessed to also support you in that journey of rising above, you know, the painful things that have happened to us. It's a very reasonable thing to want and a universal thing to want. Yeah, I, I feel like I relate to that archetype that you said. Um, yeah, there's a, there is a big, like, strong belief around, like, needing to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say that that's not unique to women. You know, I, I work with a lot of young military because so I'm down in Hampton Roads, big military prisons. And I have seen, you know, um, Navy military men, you know, in their mid-20s just weep, literally weep in my office out of the longing that they have that a woman will recognize them as valuable and claim them. 
and make them feel something other than the gray deadness that they feel being trapped in these dull, iterative jobs in this incredible bureaucratic system that a woman would find them worthy and bring any kind of color into their lives. And I have seen them cry over the agony of that. So this feeling of being alone and being in such need and just feeling like nobody sees me. I'm at the bottom of a well, a well and no one can hear me. But that, that, that is not unique to women, even though men may not admit it so freely. Now, the solution for that is no, it's hard to even speculate about. But I think it does have something to do with self-knowledge. Yeah. For us to know what we're looking for, to question whether or not a romantic relationship can really provide that. Yeah. Or whether perhaps a friendship might even be more apt to provide some of those things or a professional consult. And if we are looking for that with our beloved, to know that that's what we're looking for, to, to own it. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting how you, when you're talking about the solutions, you're talking about external things. And on my spiritual path, because I know that this is, this is something that I've been working through for many years, um, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I've, I'm being taught to not seek externally for this, but to go inside and, you know, connect to myself and, and, and get those things for myself. Mm-hmm. So are you, do you feel like, um, I, I guess my question is how, how do you feel about that? Because you mentioned external things like a friendship, a job, you know, or maybe it is the romantic partner versus going inside and, and developing those things internally. Yeah. <clears throat> I know, I know what we're talking about is that there's a psychotherapeutic and spiritual paradigm, yeah. which I think is pernicious, that we shouldn't need something from an outside person. We should need that. I question that when it's used as a blanket statement. Yeah. I do think that inner work, which is really be- between the ego and the soul and the self, the inner life, there are things that have to be faced and known and approached only from within. But I also think that human relationships are probably the greatest area of human growth. I don't think, and Jung didn't think, that human beings could actualize alone in a cave. It just didn't think it was possible. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, I feel like that. Sorry, I I was just going to say, Sean, I totally agree because we talk about this all the time. Like, there's a part that a lot of these spiritual practices are missing where it's like, you do need to go inside and you do need to get in touch with what's going on in there and be quiet and really listen. But there are things that need to be resolved or worked out or dealt with in real life. Or we just need to be companioned to be able to to have a, a partner that you can sit at the breakfast table and say, I just had this amazing dream. 
you know, where this dove descended into my heart and all of a sudden I'm filled with this incredible relief about this awful situation I was struggling with. And to have a partner who can just hold your hand and say, that's marvelous. Yeah. I mean, they weren't the dove, but, but you're not alone to have somebody who's just companioning you. Yeah. On your inner journey. That's not unreasonable. Not all of us are lucky enough to find that, but it's not unreasonable to want that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the inner journey, Jung was an introvert, so he was very interested in the inner journey. Freud was an extrovert. He was very interested in outer journeys. So it has a lot to do with typology. Relative to our work, the inner journey would be, as we've discussed before, going into the imaginal world and trying to identify, you know, what are the images around all these mother impulses, father impulses? And the shadow often shows up in the people who we hate, who antagonize us who represent parts of our own personality that we have suppressed. So inside of ourselves, where's that person? I had a, I had a really powerful shadow dream. Um, so I have very strong um, antagonistic feelings towards this whole evangelical political movement. I mean, I really could just go Norma Ray on all of that, you know. <laughs> And, you know, I'm really loud about it and stop my feet. And one of the reasons is that it's just such a huge political presence in Southern Virginia. So, you know, it's, it's right in front of me all the time. And so years ago, I had this dream <clears throat> that I was, you know, in this uh, collective space, so a resort or a conference center. And I walk up this long, winding rail um, stairway. And then in the middle of a group of people is Pat Robertson. And I walk up to him, and he looks at me with the warmest expression, and he shakes my hand, and I like him. And I woke up just feeling astounded. Uh, Pat Robertson was one of the one kind of the founding engines of this evangelical political movement in the United States. And I woke up feeling just shocked that I still had a resonance of fondness for this man and this community that I feel so negative about. So that's a piece of shadow work, making shaking hands with the, old, the evangelizing part of my own personality. You know, here I am on the podcast, and I'm kind of evangelizing about, you know, Jungian ideas. And we have our own podcast, and I evangelize there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, right? So who am I to be like casting stones at people who evangelize about other things? Yeah. But I, but I do, you know? Yeah. So this idea of going inside and meeting my dreams, meeting my inner visions, taking full responsibility for my feeling states, that I am generating my feelings. I am generating my thoughts. And I have question. All of that is inner work, but having somebody by our side who we're sharing that with, who loves us, and who is interested in what we have to say about our journey, 
is a gift also. Yeah. It doesn't replace, one thing doesn't replace the other. Yeah. I guess is the thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. One thing doesn't replace the other. And it's not this or that. It's both. Mm -hmm. So where I think it gets... And I actually, I, I have like a soapbox that I like to stand on. Is, that, <laughs> is there's an idea that that um, comes out of what I think is a misinterpretation of Buddhist teaching, which is that we should kill out our desires, mm. that our desires are somehow wrong. And so people translate that into finding their needs negative. I shouldn't need another person. Yeah. I mean, to me, that is such a perversion of of the human heart and of what we need. Yeah. What I think that statement is trying to communicate is that we have to challenge our appetites. Yes. Because appetites are stimulated by our senses. For instance, I may have, and I've had this experience, I've had a a full meal. In fact, I've had too much of a full meal. Like, you know, my belt is tight. I'm like groaning because I ate too much. And I'm driving down the highway. And as I'm going to my office, there's a steakhouse. And then this, this smell of a sizzling steak will come into my car and I'll go, mmm, wow, that smells really good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, like that is horrifying. You know, and that's a perfect example of appetite. It's like that gustatory, that need to taste something is constantly firing, even though I could not possibly eat another bite. So our appetites are stimulated by the senses, and we have all kinds of appetites. There's a wonderful Kabbalistic saying, and Kabbalah is uh, the mystery tradition or the mystical tradition of Judaism. And it says that your desires are God's promises to you. Just really let that sink in. Once you differentiate between appetites, which are stimulated by the outer world, you just put them aside, and you really go into yourself, and you discover what you want, not what you crave, what you want, then we ask the question of how did that get in there? Because wants are discovered through introspection. And if we live in a spiritual universe where the divine has a hand in all things, then it suggests that what you discover that you truly and authentically want is something that was put there through a kind of divine purpose which is congruent with what Jung was talking about in terms of individuation. So what you really want inside of you is 
part of your actualization, part of who you are destined to be, and what was promised to you in terms of the kind of woman that you are destined to be, and that our authentic wants shape the person who you will become. Because the journey to achieving that magnetic end and the magnetic pull to get there, that journey will shape your personality. That's so brilliant. Um, just the whole idea about the appetite and tuning into an actual want versus a craving. And I just think that this, this is like a huge teaching for our relationship with money mm -hmm. and uh, consumerism and shopping, which also I think really influences uh, the way that we deal with people in relationship too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Wow. That's a big one. Like I, I, I feel like I want to spend some time like thinking about that, like, journaling that after that's a big one the desire piece and the difference between want and craving mm -hmm. and and also the place of like enough versus more you know right yeah. that the the more is almost always appetites yeah the feeling that i just couldn't have enough to eat yeah despite what my body is telling me that's pure appetites. Yeah. <clears throat> but going into this level, since we're diving into it, there's this interesting idea of the neurotic desire, which is something that's, of course, not necessarily Kabbalistic. And it goes into this idea of you can't ever get too much of what you don't need. But, but unpacking that is complicated. So here we are working with a client who is approaching 400 pounds and, and nothing is working to interfere with the food, the relationship to food. There's not enough insight. There's not enough diet plans. There's not enough options, support, nothing. Nothing seems to be able to interfere with this, but clearly the body does not need, you know, 10,000 calories a day. Something inside the psyche says there aren't, there aren't enough mouthfuls of food to resolve what is inside of me. And often through a lengthy analysis, what we find is the hidden need that will not be tolerated. <clears throat> For whatever reason, I cannot find a sexual partner or I am forbidden from finding a sexual partner. And I'm hungry for touch. I'm hungry for that kind of connection. But that is not permitted in this inner kingdom. That need has been locked in the dungeon. And so somehow, this goes to addiction, Bianca, what you were saying, somehow the only thing that is permitted is eating. And so I will continue to try to salve my desire for sexual intimacy through eating, but there isn't enough food to ever actually salve the need to be physically intimate. So you can eat until the kingdom is, is empty of food, 
Wow. But if you never actually take that part of you out of prison, you will never feel sated. So one of the ways that we know whether or not we're dealing or satisfying a true desire is that at some point you should feel sated. It's so interesting. Um, the I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, he's uh, he's a a doctor who works um, with addiction, and um, he's actually from Vancouver, where I'm from. And we have a pretty big issue with um, substance abuse addiction in Vancouver. And uh, he has this amazing book about about addiction about his work um on the downtown east side which is this area in vancouver that is just absolutely heartbreaking to go to the name of his book is called in the realm of hungry ghosts mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's exactly what you're talking about here yeah yeah in the realm of addiction one of the things, one of the books that I like is um, Ecstasy, Understanding the Psychology of Joy by Robert Johnson, who's an analyst. It's a tiny little book. And what he does is he analyzes the Dionysic myth, because Dionysus was the god of ecstasy, the god of wine, of dance, of libidinous joy. And, and also the god of uh, the resurrected god, because... In mythology, Dionysus is killed and resurrected because just his heart is saved. And after he's um, killed and roasted on a spit, his heart is rescued and inserted in Zeus's thigh, and then he is born a second time from the thigh of Zeus. But this archetype of ecstasy often underlies this some of these addictive choices. What Robert Johnson suggests is that if we are naturally shaped along the lines of the Dionysic archetype, that we are naturally ecstatic beings. If we find drugs or alcohol before we find a truly ecstatic, wholesome experience, we will mistake the drug experience for the spiritual ecstatic thing that we are looking for, which Robert Johnson calls junk food ecstasy. This is one of the things that AA tries to resolve, is to actually separate people out from the ecstatic experience of being drunk and try to replace it with some kind of a spiritual experience, which is actually what people are trying to reach, but have never been shown a methodology, a methodology to achieve it. Yes, exactly, exactly. And they say, actually, like, when you start the 12-step program, that the you'll be most successful if you hit a point where you have opened yourself up for a spiritual awakening. Yeah. Exactly. And a spiritual awakening in, in Jung's terms. And remember, Jung had a dialogue with Bill, 
around Bill W. He, I Jung think Jung said that. Yeah, I think that was Jung's <laughs> words in the, the big book. Exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> Jung's ideas had a little bit to play in the genesis of the Formula 12-step program. Yeah. And, and this idea of individuation, that when the self, when the spiritual center of the personality activates and connects to the ego, it, particularly if the ego has been alienated and lost in addiction or trauma, that the ego experiences that as a death and resurrection experience. That mm. the old paradigms, which were based on trauma, which were based on addiction, that were based on, on, on poverty or all kinds of suffering that we have, that has to be burned away, that has to be abandoned, mm -hmm. and left behind, in order for us to become truly who we were meant to be. Mm. And that that is a tumultuous process mm -hmm. that people will often flee. Yeah. And so, you know, in the New Age movement, Jung's ideas, you know, are very, very popular. People love dream analysis. People like the idea of coming into an analysis. But when people really understand what the self will require from them, it's not uncommon for people to flee. Yeah, it's not easy work. Yes, that you and Bianca are, are out here in the world talking to women, talking about becoming your fullest and truest self. And when that begins to approach, submitting to the divine center inside of them, and what that will cost them. That's, that's the dividing line between people who fully embody the work and people who are simply becoming more adaptive. Yeah. And it's the difference between becoming more skilled or transformation. Mm. And it's okay on either side. Human beings benefit by becoming more skilled, more skilled yeah. human beings. Good relationship skills, good money management skills, good skills to get your career going, good skills to be a mom, a dad, good skills, good financial skills, great you, good skills. Are you meaning like um, becoming skilled versus transforming, meaning like going through a situation and becoming more resilient versus allowing something to just like break you open and completely transform. For people who, for people who have been traumatized or people who have been raised in enormous deprivations, and people who have been caught in addiction for a very long time. Often, the way the personality is functioning, the way the ego is functioning, is profoundly alien to who they really are. That it's a series of survival techniques. <clears throat> now, 
when somebody is in that place, they may be blessed with a tremendous intellect so that they're reading books on how to do active listening, which makes it seem like they're empathic, but they actually never feel empathy. They actually, you know, um, watch regular YouTube videos on um, how to date, but they actually have no curiosity about the other sex at all and really have very little sexual drive, but they've decide, decided that this is part of the process of, of being, you know, a, a person, is you have to have, you know, a, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, and we're going to pursue that. There are people who can learn to discipline themselves, although they have absolutely no interest in the work that they're doing, but they show up on time and they do everything that's required and they're earning a nice salary. And all the while, they live in a world that is only various shades of gray. They live in a world of an atmosphere of consistent desperation. Although they have all the skills such that their friends think, wow, success, what a successful young woman. She's doing great. She's, she's got all these things. But inside, they don't feel happy. They don't feel connected. They don't know who they are. And they don't feel good. So we can give them all the skill training we want so that their clever personality can continue to follow the rules that society suggests will be very successful for them. But when the self emerges, if they're lucky, it will create a revolution of feeling and of values that is totally unrelated to the clever skills that they have developed to survive. And that will turn them upside down. Wow. I feel like it's so interesting because what you're talking about is the first part that you described that like develop the intellect, like appear like you completely have your shit together. And it's almost like a way of just like coping and survival. And that was me. And I was very successful in my career from the outside looking in, people are like, wow, look at everything you've done. And then I had this experience um, where I, I actually had a dream and I woke up from this dream and I couldn't unsee or unfeel what I felt in the dream. And I completely changed my life. And I've been in so much, like, it's like a grieving process and it's deep and it's painful and I've basically like let go of all of my connection to that whole other world and you know how I feel right now I feel like I don't know anything I just don't know anything except for the feelings that I'm feeling in the present moment and and that sometimes it's a lot of pain but then also there's times of like tuning into like subtle subtle beauty that I never would have seen before which is pretty incredible. So I'm relating to what you're saying. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you do know. You absolutely know. And, and you also beautifully described how the self will often intervene. Yeah. It's like Paul on the road to Damascus. All of a sudden, you know, you know Christ, just, Christ strikes him and he falls off his donkey. And he has this incredible conversion of consciousness that your life is humming along. And then one day the self talks to you sends you a letter, a package, in the symbolism of a dream. And that the symbolism of a dream does not just convey ideas, it conveys life force. Yeah. And that life force entered into you, and it set in motion changes. Mm. That is a wonderful, wonderful story. Yeah. And perhaps one day in another environment, you might even share that dream as an example of how the higher self intervenes and what it costs, but what becomes beautiful afterwards. And this is captured in the story of the Velveteen Rabbit that becomes real. It's captured in the story of Pinocchio. Mm. It's captured in all of these stories where you know, there's a kind of unreal life, an inanimate life that is lived, and then something happens, and then we become enfleshed, incarnated. Yeah. So in a way, you are incarnating your life in your life. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like that. And I love how you acknowledge the cost, because it's been really hard, but at the same time, I'm also grateful that it's not gray anymore. Exactly. Yeah. It's color. Yeah. There's a, there's a wonderful movie called Pleasantville. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Yeah, I've seen yes. it. Yeah. For, for the listeners, it, try to go out and find a copy somewhere. So, you know, the first half of the movie is all in black and white, and it starts with people that are living in this Mayberry existence. And then these two people you know, of, I think from the future or from the real world, penetrate this black and white world. And then through these passionate mistakes that they make, that the world finally begins to have feeling and color and a range of human experience. And it is very much like that. And we don't even realize, talking about a lacuna, for years we don't even realize that we're living in a gray world. No. Because if you've never seen any other color, you don't even know what's missing. Yeah. That's how the dream felt for me. Like when I woke up, I had this feeling of like, okay, I just, I just experienced something that can't be unseen. And it feels like there was a radical shift in what I knew like life to be. It was, yeah. It, I'm having a hard time describing it, but um, I didn't realize like how gray everything was before. Right. Yeah. I just, I thought I had a pretty good life. Like I was successful. I was engaged, you know, like from the outside looking in, everything was great. And I walked away from all of that because I can't, I couldn't unsee what I felt. It was like this feeling of liberation, mm -hmm. it was like freedom. 
right? And the liberation comes from beginning to be who you authentically are. That's the incredible irony. It's not that we're it's not that we have to throw off the shackles of corporate America or we have to attack any particular religious system or anything like that. The, the most revolutionary act that we can be is to unleash our authentic selves. And no one around you may even notice it. But the revolution inside of yourself changes everything. You know, I think one of the biggest things that I've noticed, no, noticed since I've been going through this change, and it's been happening for about seven months. Seven months ago is when I had the dream and made some changes in my life. There's like, seems to be this like, there's a different level of like people that I'm attracting into my life now, like this, on like this resonance quality that are so much more aligned like in this very deep, authentic way. So it's really interesting to observe that and just notice like these little synchronicities that keep happening and, and the type of people that are coming into my life with a lot of ease. Mm. Yeah. And part of that is because you're visible. Yeah. <laughs> you are visible, not your compensating skill set. Yeah. So when people begin to be authentic, who they really are is visible and other people can see them and then therefore decide, oh, I recognize you. You're part of my tribe. Right? Yeah. And then they can shake your hand. Yeah. If we're totally hidden, you know, underneath, you know, in the basement because of all the trauma we experience. Yeah. And people are just looking at our coping mechanisms. They kind of don't even know who we are. They're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And, and in the last seven months, I've felt the deepest um, levels of intimacy in like relationships with men and women. And like, I'm not talking romantically, but just like, it's just like deep intimacy that I've never experienced before. And, and I'm talking with people that have been in my life for years, like even with Bianca and I, like Bianca and I, have been working together only since January we decided to work together on this podcast and there's like there's a deep level of intimacy between us and it's a new relationship and you know we get we have listeners all the time being like oh my god your chemistry together and that feels to me like a representation of the shift into alignment i think that's a great demonstrated example yeah i concur <laughs> I know you're, being, <laughs> you're being you're being quiet, Bianca. I'm wondering. No, no, what... I just, I just, on, I know I've kind of, but I've just been, it's, just, I've just been kind of in awe of this conversation. It's really amazing. It's just noticing things for myself and then things about others within myself. If that makes sense. So, yeah, just a very reflective kind of conversation, like the peaks and valleys of we are as humans. So why don't we analyze that dream? So um, if you guys are listening and you didn't know or see this on Instagram, we were collecting some dream submissions from our listeners. And we picked out a dream that Joseph is going to analyze for us. 
So I'll start just by reading what the listener has submitted so we're all in the story uh, together. So this is a 33-year-old female, and she tells us, I don't really remember what happened days before my dream. However, this particular dream was two months or so after my mom had passed away. I was pretty busy working. I always dream crazy heavy stuff, but I don't always remember everything by the time I wake up. Then she begins to talk about her dream. She says, I saw my mom in real time, but a vision of her from one of our beach vacations, so she was younger, curly hair on top of her head and a blue beach t-shirt she always liked. Now keep in mind, blue is significant to the story because we felt she would like her urn to be that color and we all chose one with many shades of blue. So here's the dream. She was showing me her new house and some art that my brother had gotten her. But this house was really big. It seemed with high ceilings and off-white beige-type walls. And the art on the wall she was showing me were two pieces, one from my brother and one from my aunt. She then comments that her brother and aunt played very strong roles in planning the affairs after her mother's passing away. She also tells us that she had just returned from overseas and she had missed her departure and wasn't doing very well, even though she was the oldest. And I assume that she felt that a lot of responsibility would fall to her. So the dreamer gives us, you know, a bit of information about her life, but we're going to look at just these few sentences from the dream. So dreaming about one of our parents after they have passed away is often deeply reassuring. Uh, a lot of us, of course, feel an enormous amount of loss. We've lost the physical presence of our parent. And often we've also come through a very difficult time if our parents have been declining slowly and they've been very, very ill and you know we're seeing them decline. We'll have all of the fear of their passing away, all of the empathic suffering, watching them be ill. And then with the physical passing, there's a great void and a great amount of unprocessed distress about not just their death, but the whole process of dying. It's a very complicated thing. So we begin with some part of the dreamer's psyche trying to help her, trying to show her that in her inner life, in the life of the soul, that the image of her mother is not only alive, but it's young and vibrant, just as her mother was in her beach vacations. So here we see the self, the deep center of her psyche, helping her by delivering this image that even though the outer mother has passed away, the inner mother, the memories of being comforted, the memories of being advised, being nurtured, are still totally vibrantly alive inside of her. 
and they can be visited in the form of her imagination. That this young woman can relax and come back to the dream over and over again and encounter this living image of her mother and receive some of the feelings that she had when her mother was alive. Now, in the dream, this young, vibrant mother is in a new house. So the psyche is acknowledging that the mother has been translated out of the known world, the familiar world, into a different kind of setting. And so the dream is acknowledging that this is not the exact mother, the biological mother that has passed away, but is a kind of spiritual derivative a spiritual image that now lives in a spiritual place. That kind of differentiation, I think, is important. People will often feel, after a parent dies, that they're seeing the parent out of the corner of their eyes. They'll kind of be sitting there at the table and they'll turn and think, gosh, I can swear that my mother was just sitting there. Or that I heard my mother's voice. Or they have a hard time accepting that their parent has died. I've had clients come in for months after the death of a mother and say, I just can't believe she's gone. I keep feeling like I'm going to get in my car, drive down the street to where her house, and she's going to be there. And I, I can't shake that feeling. And that feeling that the parent hasn't actually died actually locks up the grieving process. It locks up and slows down the adaptation to reality. So even in this very gentle symbolism that here's my mom and she's in a new house is trying to deliver that little bit of medicine to the dreamer, which is your mom really is gone. She's somewhere else. And that sounds like a little thing, but it's not little. It's actually quite a big thing. Then there's the art that the brother had gotten her and the art that the aunt had gotten her. To me, that's a slightly complicated part of the dream where I would wish the dreamer was here so we could unpack some of her personal associations to what that might mean. But... I would interpret that as a kind of comforting reassurance from the self that her mother was in fact affected by the relationships around her and did in fact take in the life that is around her. Often when someone dies, I'll hear people say, in things like, I'm not sure that uh, my mother really loved me. I'm not sure that I loved my mother. I, I don't know what I meant to my mom, or I don't know what I meant to my father, or all of this unfinished conversations, or perhaps even trauma that, that, is, that has never been talked about. So all of this unsureness. In the dream, there is this image that the mother is taking something from the lived life into the next in a symbolic form, because art is symbolic. 
So I think that's the second message to the dreamer is that your brother and your aunt, in fact, meant something to your mother. And that something of those relationships were truly inscribed in her soul that are carried, that mattered. Now, what I might imagine, because dreams often bring up something that's missing, in the waking life, the dreamer might very well have been concerned about the relationship of the brother and the aunt to the mother, that that might have been worrisome. So the dream sometimes offers a reassurance that there was another dimension of connection that she might not have recognized. To me, it seems that the dream is, is here to comfort her. And I hope, as I said earlier, that the dreamer will believe that there is an inner mother that is not dead, that is alive and well, and still active in her, and can still provide some of the comfort that she needs in this transition. Wow. I just have two questions. Um, I don't know if they'll be quick questions, but I, I have to ask. So um, you mentioned the color blue. Do colors have any strong significance in dreams or would that be like your own significance to the color, your own connection to the color? I think with color, I would first ask the individual to associate to the color. What do they think about the color? What comes to mind? And Chantelle is what we had done. I would have them think about the color blue and tell me what images just naturally flow up, sometimes which might be surprising. And, and it could be significant. That could carry a certain kind of message. The early analysts were also very interested in color symbolism. So Marie-Louise von Franz is kind of the, the heir of the Jungian world. She's passed away uh, as well, but she did a lot of work on color symbolism. So when I see blue, you know, if we think about the archetypal world, what's blue? What's blue that all human beings would know is blue? The ocean? Hmm? Sky. The sky? The ocean and the sky. So in either of those dimensions, we're talking about something that is impenetrably deep. Whether we're going to the depths of the ocean, which in the ancient worlds was mythical. Nobody knew how deep the ocean was. The ocean went on forever. And no one knows how, how high the sky is. So blueness, to me, evokes that feeling of, of moving into that infinitely um, deep or faraway place and the mystery of all of that. Now, she tells us that... Um, her mother has a relationship to blue. But if we took it as a symbol, you know, we might understand that as part of the translation of the mother into this, you know, spiritual reality. And for her, into the deep reality of her own imaginal world. This is shown sometimes in fairy tales. It's not uncommon that a child will be orphaned by one or both parents. I'm thinking about, you know, a particular scene in a fairy tale where, you know, the mother is buried and a tree grows up 
over the mother's body. You know, when the daughter comes to the tree and asks for what she needs, and then the tree miraculously provides it. In another fairy tale, she takes out a handkerchief with three drops of her mother's blood. And then as she goes on her heroine's journey, each drop of the mother's blood provides advice in a pivotal moment in the fairy tale. And it's similar to the dream that there's a drop of the mother that remains or the miraculous tree that grows over her grave that still provides something for her. I think there's some truth to it. And then my second question was um, just about reoccurring dreams. Like, what is it telling you when you consistently have the same dream? I just, I remember having a dream when I was a kid for years that I was, it was dark, everything was black, but you could just see, you know, those bridges they have like in the jungle and you're walking over something and it's rickety. Yeah. I would be walking on the bridge and then a tiger would be chasing me and then it would be that would that was the dream over and over um and then it kind of stopped i don't remember it like, i remember it having it for a long time but i don't remember it continuing for my entire life or anything but i was just wondering about that and the significance of having the same dream over and over i think that um reoccurrent dreams happen when there's an important message, communication, medicine that the self is trying to deliver to the waking personality. And, and there's something that is interfering with the personality being able to actually receive the medicine, to receive the help from the dream. And so that spiritual center inside of us tries over and over again to make something conscious, to make something shift in the personality. Now, <clears throat> if we took your dream of you're on a kind of rope bridge in uh, some kind of a jungle environment, perhaps over a chasm very dramatically, and it sounds like you're, you're trying to cross the bridge, so you're trying to make a transition from one place to another. And then the tiger, is the tiger um, causing you to run to the opposite side or run back to the known side? It's causing me to run to the opposite side, but then it would, it would, the whole dream would just kind of stop and go to black. Like I couldn't, mm. it was like I was running, but the, the, the scene wasn't finished. Okay. So it sounds like the point of the dream was to get you off the bridge. Is to, is to force you to make a certain kind of transition that somehow you were resisting. So the self can appear to us in very benign, angelic ways. The self can appear to us in very ferocious ways. And, th and this was something that um, Jung wrote extensively about because in, the, in his time, 1920s, 30s, and 40s, you know, the idea of God or the self was kind of cordoned by this blessed mercy of Christ, that Christ was the primary symbol of divinity, and that Christ only had all of these very loving, benign qualities. But as Jung was investigating the image of the divine, 
or the spiritual center of human beings, he really had to go into images of antiquity, ancient images of the divine, in order to really understand the kind of spectrum of ways that, that these suprapersonal forces can show up in the dreams. So I actually imagine that that tiger was a kind of divine visitation coming out of the unconscious, coming out of the deepest instinctive part of your psyche that was going to force you to make a transition that you were hesitant about or stuck in. Now, we would have to talk, we don't have to, but we would need to talk about, you know, many of the situations that were happening in your life around that time that were making you hesitant about the transition and perhaps even making it dangerous for you to stay in the middle of the bridge. You know, if you actually just kept swinging on that rope bridge, that's its own problem. Now, this is also a story about ambivalence and not wanting to make a decision. Whenever we're not making a decision, we're just staying on one of those little rope bridges swinging over a ravine, and we might be very comfortable, you know, being on the rope bridges of our lives. But, you know, the tiger, some part of your psyche is like, we're not having it. Like, you're going to move to one side or the other. You're going to either attack the lion or you're going to run to the other side. But just swinging around in the middle, not going to happen. It's not going to be supported. It's so funny that you say that because, like I said, this dream, I remember this dream vividly, but I also remember being really young. Like, I'm talking like five or something like that. Yeah. And it's so funny that you say that because my dad says that all to, to me all the time. He goes, you can't just be in this middle area. Just make a decision, pick one or the other, go with it, and whatever happens, happens. If there's consequences, there's con like it's like something I do a lot. So it's kind of freaking me out that you say this. I'm like, wait, so I've been doing this since I was five. <laughs> it's interesting because, and I've been thinking about, I've been more conscious about that lately. I'm like, I just need to, like, I get so stuck in the, in the spot of uh, not knowing which which way to pick that I don't end up picking anything because I, I, I get so freaked out about if I make the wrong decision. So mm -hmm. really interesting that you said that. Yeah, and in the dream, you know, because you're a little girl, you know, the, the most intelligent decision is to hightail it to the other side <laughs> instead of running into the jaws of a tiger. Right. But it also just keeps you in motion, which I think is important. But the difficulty with being stuck in the middle is that we're resisting movement. So several things, consequences can happen. Either the great machinery of the universe will make a decision for us, and then we've abdicated a creative moment in our lives, or a, there was an option to have an experience that has expired, and then we've just missed an opportunity to live. God, to live is... in a certain thing. <laughs> That's happened to me so many times where I've either been forced into the situation because I have been ignoring myself in making the choice or just it being like a lost opportunity. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I think the deep dive, you know, in terms of your meditations and journaling and curiosity is when you're there on the bridge, between the two 
landing places, you are probably in a state of dread. And that's the mystery. That's another, that could be related in some ways to the tiger. Why, why do I feel dread? And the difficulty with the dread is that it prevents you from perceiving what you truly desire because the dread is such a pervasive energy and it, it, it actually stuns the whole environment so that you cannot register the nuances of the options in front of you and even notice, well, that's more appealing. Oh, that's less appealing. Oh, I have a fantasy about that. Well, that just feels really dry. I don't even have any fantasies. Like all of that kind of... Sorry. I don't know what you How do I come... Can you guys see me? Yes. I think you're still recording. Okay. That's okay. Okay. I'm good now. Sorry about that. Sure. So when we acknowledge that the issue isn't about making about one thing or the other, the issue is that dread has invaded my environment so that I can no longer discriminate the values of the things that are in front of me, which in a sense just turns everything into a black field of dread. So in the same way, like if you were at a restaurant and there was an orange, an apple, and a pork chop, and you were trying to decide, you know, which you were most attracted to, but as you looked at them, all of them turned black, literally, just like, you know, like they were charred into blackness, then you'd think, uh, uh, do I want any of this? Like, are you forcing me to choose between the charred chop or the charred apple? Or, But that's what dread does. When that dread rises up, it's like all the options have been charred. So all of a sudden, why would you choose one thing over the other? Because I just feel dread everywhere. I cannot believe you're saying this. <laughs> yeah. But I feel that in my heart, I know how painful that is. Yeah. And I know how much it costs to have that specter, you know, haunt you. So that's the mystery. It's not about the choices. It's about dread. Why does my psyche generate dread so easily, so frequently? But who am I such that this is happening to me? There's no fast, easy answers, but it's a deep question to just keep thrumming with. Wow, thank you for making that so clear. Yeah. It's so yeah. interesting, Bianca, because remember what we were talking about today, where you, Bianca has a sore back and she was kind of like saying like, oh, it's because of this and things that I did and that. And I gave her a different perspective. And she's like, I couldn't get to that like place right away. I just automatically went to the place of something that I did. Yeah. 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 So we have to challenge that. We all do our whole lives. We have to challenge how we're framing things and whether or not we're looking at it in a way that's useful to us or stymieing. And I think as, as, uh, as a mentor, Chantel, I, I know that you do that. I've heard your podcasts. 
that you really listen to people and then you offer them another way of walking around the, the moment to see if they can kind of have a way in because the old way of getting in isn't working. So I think that's, that's great. And I also think, Bianca, that dread is powerful. I mean, we really could talk a long time, all three of us, about you know why does that happen? Where does it happen? And what do we do? Because dread is so paralyzing. Whether it's writer's block or you know uh, fear of filing your taxes or you know the dread you feel going out to a first date or the dread to decide which college you're going to go to. I mean, it it, it just crushes every moment, any moment that it shows up in. And I think that what we're curious about, because we're all sort of individuals, is to believe that dread doesn't come up all the time. That's the first thing, which it must be because you're successful, Bianca. You do a lot of things in the world. So obviously not everything is full of dread. But there are specific things where, where the, the demon of dread has been invoked. And we have to look at that whole situation to say, what is triggering that? And sometimes it's not logical at all. It's, this reminds me, you know, of, of myself when I was three, you know, and blah, blah, blah happened. You know, this guy reminds me of this person that really frightened me at a certain point in my life. You know, it can be incredibly irrational because the limbic system, the emotional system can fire off, you know, sometimes for the tiniest nuanced thing that is really not even related rationally to the thing that's in front of us. But once our nervous system is caught, we're caught. So going into that, again, that imaginal world, if we can, and seeing what the images are around the dread, doing what we can to soothe ourselves in wholesome ways, asking for help, of course, watching the dreams. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. And, and I really respect that as a, a, a challenge. I really do. Well, it, 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 everything you've said has just articulated for me what I've been feeling, but couldn't really understand because I'd never expressed it. Um, sometimes I think we just need to hear it back and reflect it to us with words mm -hmm. to kind of even begin to um, be suspicious of it. I love that. <laughs> and this is the beauty of just conversations that several things happen. One is in this very moment, a certain membrane of isolation around that experience has been punctured just by having a, us talking about it briefly, just in this little way. Yeah. The other thing is when we put words to it, just the act of putting words to something gives us breathing space from it because it becomes an object. The dread is a thing and I'm over here. Because once we, it becomes an object of consideration, even if it's just a few millimeters, 
<sighs> yeah, that's how I feel like, oh. <laughs> yes, yes. And we do that for each other naturally, even in our friendships. We share our secrets and someone offers us a few words to give us breathing room. You know, it's a human kindness. Yes, thank you so much. Yes. I love, I love how you just talk now about creating space. That's something that you ex probably experience in your work very much. Yeah, a lot. It's like, can we just slow down to separate ourselves from the hijacked brain, create mm -hmm. space, and then make a decision from there or, or decide to tune in a little longer? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, to consider without the distraught yeah, heart exactly. Exactly. that doesn't really belong there. So anytime we have an emotional response that is not commensurate <clears throat> to the circumstance, we know that what's activating in us is old stuff, but it's old, powerful stuff. That is really, it's like these ancient gods start rumbling under the earth and, you know, shit's going to fly. <laughs> <clears throat> and then we have to yeah. dive down, you know, into these old images and, and kind of wring the emotions out of them so that they don't have as much power to hijack us, as you were saying. Yeah. Beautiful. It's, sorry, I'll just add this in quickly. It's just like for the first time, because I've remembered this dream so, like, so clearly for so long, that for the first time I'm now visualizing going towards the tiger instead of running away from it. So let's ride with that. So just in your imagination and just let it go wherever it wants to go. So you run towards the lion and then what happens in your daydream? I feel like I kind of, like, <laughs> I have this sword and I'm like going at it with the lion. And then the next image that comes to me is like, we both kind of like stop fighting and then like become friends. I like that. That's what yeah. it is at this moment anyway. <laughs> yeah. So if I could riff on that a little while, because I love that image. So we think in symbols, like who knows where that sword came from, but you know, like something in the unconscious, put a sword in your hand, filled you full of this heroic determination. So the sword gives you a sense of power, this feeling that you really could contend with your dread that you're big enough to deal with it. You're not a kid anymore. But a sword is also a symbol of discrimination because swords cut things into pieces. And, and discrimination is part of being successful in the world because you have to know how one thing is different from another thing to then know how they're useful or not useful it allows us to evaluate. So the fact that you took a sword in your hand is also, I have the power to discriminate what I want from what I don't want, from where I want to move to, to where I don't want to move to, to go right or left, rather than having it all smushed together. Wow. So the sword is the perfect thing, perfect thing for you to just imagine is in your hand all the time. The sword of discrimination, it's yours. You've got it now. 
Wow, I feel like I'm like sweating. <laughs> <laughs> That's marvelous. And that this, kind of yeah, this feels big. Wow. And that little body response that really tells us that those symbols really put an energy in you because even your body's responding. It's not an academic reaction. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like emotional, but not not in a crying way, in a in a I don't know. Like I, the only word I can think of is like light. Mm, right on. Wow. Yeah, it was stressful to be on that bridge for thirty years. That's a that's a lot. Wow. To live, <laughs> and to live on a bridge. Can you imagine that? This is when I work with people. I try to imagine I'm in the dream with them. I try to imagine myself creating a little pup tent in the middle of like a rope bridge with some old planks on it. And I'm there like trying to sleep, trying to study, trying to decide who I am in the middle of a, of a bridge that's swinging over a ravine that's getting older and older. And I get also it. pitch black, no light. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is, that really evokes a feeling, a deep feeling. So to grant yourself the power to get off the bridge, I mean, I could start crying. I mean, I get it. Like racing. <laughs> the relief, right? I can just feel the exhalation. And if you lived on a bridge and you finally get off the bridge, talk about a lacuna, right? You get off the bridge and you're like, oh my God, that's what it feels like to be off the bridge. I've been on that bridge my whole life. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, it's incredible to be off the bridge. Wow. Wow. And that the tigers in your life are, I don't know, maybe not as powerful as you thought they were. Yeah, I have, I, I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words because I've been feeling this bridge feeling way more clearly now since I've gotten sober, but also knew that it was an old feeling, but also was accustomed to it and didn't know that I was on a bridge. <laughs> yeah. I, I almost don't even know how to articulate it. You, did, you articulated it beautifully. You're communicating. And there's a way in which, because the psyche communicates in images, that the image tells us everything. It's like I had been living on a rope bridge in a jungle over a ravine. <laughs> I mean, like, wow. Like, anybody you tell that to is like, got it. Got it. I, I get where who you are, I get where you are, and I get what it's like to be out of that. That That is the message. I was like this close to not sharing it because I was like, oh, well, maybe we're going too over. Or I was this close. Well, thank God. Thank you so much for, wow. Thank you for sharing it because, you know, you're not the only person who's living on a bridge and is still living on a bridge a swaying bridge in the wind and they don't know it and they don't know that they can find a sword. They don't know that they can run to one side or the other and to stop living on the bridge. They don't know. So what you, what you shared so openly is the service to the sorority of bridge camping women. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Joseph. That's so this good. Incredible. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very Joseph, well. I can, I think I can speak for Bianca and I and say that we are really just celebrating you and your work and your passion for your work. And, and also I, I really want to acknowledge um, how on point your intuition is. Uh, Bianca and I, after our first call with you, we talked about how you just were so like, you are so aware of the subtleties that you can go right to what's happening very quickly. It's, it's an incredible talent and I wanna like celebrate you and acknowledge you for that. And, and I know that our listeners are just gonna get so much out, out of this podcast. I mean, I know Bianca and I <laughs> received so much from you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, and I, I'm feeling very acknowledged, which I appreciate very much. <laughs> um, before we jump off, would you mind telling us, uh, sorry, telling the listeners everywhere they can possibly find you? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so uh, two colleagues and myself have our podcast, our own podcast, up and running. It's called This Jungian Life, and uh, you can find us on any app. Uh, Jungian is J-U-N-G-I-A-N. This Jungian Life, and every week, Lisa and Deb and I, we all went to school together to become analysts. Uh, we riff on various topics, and uh, we love each other. We're great friends, and we challenge each other, and uh, we just try to hash out some stuff, and we hope that's helpful to people. I have a private practice in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I see clients. Uh, and um, I am accessible through our website, thisjungianlife.com. And uh, I hope people will just get interested in Jung and read a couple of books and, and bring Jung back into the public discourse. Amazing. That's my event, evangelical side coming out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll hear from you next time. We just want to say thank you so much to our audience for listening. As always, we received so many messages about our podcast this season, and we're just so grateful to have so many of you engaged and tuning in every week. We truly, truly, truly are super grateful. So as always, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. And until next time.